3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Priya, and I'm joined by Rosie in Studio 2. Hi, Rosie. Good morning, Priya. How are you going this morning? I am well, thank you, apart from that little false start where I forgot to turn on my mic, which nobody would know about uh, if I didn't just say it. Yeah, it's, it's good to um, be accountable to the radio audience. So. I know. I, you know I, want people to, I want people to love me not just for my amazing presenter voice and fantastic questions, but also for my little foibles on air. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> um, it, how's this cool change, by the way? Um, it's, uh, I'd say shocking. My body is shocked by the sudden drop in temperature, and this morning um, felt like a preview of what it's like to get up in a winter, dark winter morning to do radio. So that's that's something. Yeah, I mean, I definitely yesterday was shivering and like putting on layers in the house, and d- just did not know how to cope. And I think I did have the novelty this morning of wanting to put sweatpants on after getting out of bed instead of wanting to peel off another layer of skin. But I think that's only going to last one day. Yeah, well, it's good. It's good to enjoy the kind of different, different bodily sensations of the cold while we can. Yeah, and then well, we'll be back to the hot weather next week. So you know, Melbourne five seasons one day. Uh, we got a we got a huge show this week. Um, shall we just jump straight into what we got on for you? Yeah, let's kick off the rundown. Sure. So. Um, First up, uh, yesterday I caught up with Gregor Husper, who's principal lawyer at the Police Accountability Project, to discuss the Department of Justice's current review into Victoria's police complaint system and the serious problem of police investigating police. Now, this review responds to a range of concerns outlined in the 2018 Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption, or IBAC, Commission's inquiry into the external oversight of police corruption and misconduct in Victoria, as well as the Royal Commission, uh, sorry, Commission into the management of police informants. And this was a very useful and important overview. And even though uh, the public consultation survey did close on the 1st of February, there are other ways to get involved and stay updated, which Gregor does go through. Great. Thanks, Priya. Then we'll be joined by Lloyd Williams, the National Secretary for the Health Services Union. And Lloyd is going to join us to discuss the devastating number of deaths due to COVID-19 in aged care facilities, um, the government's recent announcement of bonuses for aged care workers, and the HSU's case for higher wages that is currently bought before the Fair Work Commission. And then after that, uh, Malika, our uh, co-host, is joining us via the phone to interview Zen and Ro from Red Pocket Press about uh, Lunar New Year and their zine. So Red Pocket Press is a publishing project for queer Asians who celebrate Lunar New Year. And since 2019, the year of the golden pig, they've been making cute moments and connections through zines, food and gatherings. And Zen is the founder of Red Pocket Press. 
Great. And then finally, um, we've got a very special segment where Aboriginal activist and veteran 3CR supporter Uncle Robbie Thorpe will join us along with collaborator Mindy Mikhail, sovereign Remen Kermi woman whose ancestral lands are in the south of what is now called Egypt. And they'll be discussing working in solidarity, Indigenous sovereignty and the Black GST movement. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with both of them, especially in the wake of a statement that Black GST put out uh, on the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. So I'm really keen to hear what they have to say about working together and Black GST. Yeah, can't wait, can't wait. Huge show, huge show. All right, well, we might just chuck on a CSA before we jump into headlines. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're back with us on Thursday morning breakfast, and um, we are about to jump into the headlines. Rosie, take it away. So these are the headlines for the 3rd of February. In headlines this week, the number of people incarcerated in Alice Springs Correctional Centre with COVID-19 has doubled over the weekend, with more than 300 people testing positive. Legal and human rights groups are calling for emergency measures to be put in place, including early or temporary release of prisoners. In a prison system that is already close to overcapacity, there is a heightened concern that these inca- those, sorry, those incarcerated could face delayed access to the justice services as a result of the outbreak, as well as dealing with a lack of information, anxiety and potential illness. Related to this recent outbreak, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service is extremely concerned that growing COVID-19 rates in prisons across the country pose a risk of increased First Nations deaths in custody. The legal service says that despite consistent calls since the start of the pandemic for government to take special measures to stop the spread of the virus, little to no measures have been taken, including in Victoria's prisons. In other news, a report on Israeli apartheid against Palestinians has been released by Amnesty International this week. Investigating Israel's enforced system of oppression and domination against Palestinian people. The report builds on ongoing investigations by Palestinian and Israeli organisations and details how seizures of Palestinian land and property, unlawful killings, movement restrictions and forced displacement form a system which amounts to apartheid under international law. Human rights organisations are calling for the UN Security Council to impose an arms embargo on Israel and for the International Criminal Court to consider the crime of apartheid in its current investigations. And finally, Australia is being urged by humanitarian agencies to increase aid to Afghanistan as a crisis continues to unfold following the Taliban takeover in August last year. Aid workers addressed the Senate inquiry into Australia's response to Afghanistan this week, warning that 95% of Afghans could be living in poverty by the middle of the year and advising that more than 13 million children are in need of emergency aid. An interim report that 
that former Afghan interpreters and other colleagues left behind by the Australian government are now facing risk of reprisal. And that's all for the headlines for Thursday morning breakfast. Thanks, Rosie. And I think we also wanted to just discuss and unpack a couple of those in a bit more detail. So firstly, just going to that first headline about, you know, the disastrous COVID outbreak in the Northern Territory at the moment. It's it's just been, you know, mind boggling to see the sort of um, media and political silence around this, considering that, you know, the scale of this disaster and with organizations like NAJA, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, calling for measures, including the early release of people who are incarcerated. But, you know, beyond that, looking at how this is hitting communities who are facing massive supply chain issues with things like flooding um, affecting a lot of communities and some communities like uh, Maningrida going into uh, self-imposed lockdown at the moment, even though they are facing, of course, these horrible food shortages at the same time as this outbreak. Yeah, it's really distressing. And um, I don't know, I it feels like, yeah, there is a complete silence as kind of the rest of, um, especially the eastern states get back to, you know, some sort of normal or, um, you know, kind of whatever we're calling that. But it, it feels like, yeah, it's been really um, left out of news coverage. Like we haven't been hearing about it. And these floods that have basically chopped the Stuart Highway off. So you cannot get from South Australia to the Northern Territory by road or by train which means that, yeah, supplies are simply having... I think the detour that the trucks are having to do is 3,000 kilometres through New South Wales and Queensland. So um, it's just like, yeah, I don't know if you've seen those pictures of uh, supermarkets in Alice Springs, etc., mm. but st- the shelves are completely empty and you can only imagine that it's it's much, much worse in um, remote communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we need to remember that this intersects with the housing crisis in remote Aboriginal communities as well, where... Um, overcrowding is a massive problem because of, you know, government failures to invest in housing infrastructure. And so you have families of, you know, up to 10 people living in the same dwelling who are both, you know, unable to access food supplies now, but are also unable to isolate from each other. And, you know, quarantine facilities in the Northern Territory are at capacity. And it seems like there's no extra capacity or services that are currently being provided by the Northern Territory of Federal Government. So it's really important to keep an eye on this and, you know, keep calling for action. Yeah, it feels like, um, you know, the story of the pandemic in general, really, but that that um, when these huge waves hit, and I guess the Northern Territory hasn't had, had such a big wave as this before, that it just um, reveals systemic problems that we already knew were there and then things get really terrifying and even worse um, because of these absolute yeah, injustices in, in the system. Yeah, and I mean, it all also comes back to a failure to listen to Aboriginal communities who have been calling for better resourcing, better infrastructure, you know, not just during the pandemic, but for years, which could have mitigated against some of this. Um, and, you know, turning to, to or like staying on that issue of Indigenous peoples calling for change and having, you know, governments listen to them. I, I think we also wanted to touch a bit more on that report by Amnesty International. Yeah, that's right. So um, I actually have a quote here from from that report that outlines the key components of of the um, definition of of what the Israeli state is doing in um, in terms of apartheid the apartheid regime. So in the report, 
um, says the key components of this system of oppression and domination are territorial fragmentation, segregation and control through the denial of equal nationality and status, restrictions on movement, discriminatory family reunification laws, the use of military rule and restrictions on the right to political participation and popular resistance, dispossession of land and property, and the suppression of Palestinians' human development and denial of their economic and social rights. Mm, yeah, it's, I mean, this is something I feel that, you know, it's, it's important to have this stated clearly for the international community and especially by uh, an established body like Amnesty International. But this is also just amplifying the concerns that Palestinians have been raising, you know, for decades and decades. Um, and something that I think has been really important that is brought up, that's been brought up by a lot of Palestinian activists is this report is, you know, very, very significant and there needs to be, you know, international action and sanctions based upon it. Um, but also, you know, from people, from academics and um, activists like Lana Tatur, Jamal Nabulsi, uh, Janine Harani, basically focusing on the fact as well that apartheid is a tool and a dimension of this broader project of Israeli settler colonialism. And so it's important to keep a dual focus on that as well, looking at apartheid as the tool and settler colonialism as the structuring project. So making sure that we don't lose focus on the, I guess, the overarching logic that, um, that governs this. Yeah, I mean, just to put that in really clear terms, it, it does, it's very, very clear that um, the, the point of uh, Israeli apartheid and the point of um, all of those uh, acts of oppression and dispossession that I just described is um, the removal of Palestinian people from the land and to create a Jewish or to maintain a Jewish majority state in Palestine. So that's that's the point of what they're doing. And yeah, exactly as you say, um, from academics and activists trying to reiterate the point that it is a part of a tool of settler colonialism. Yeah, and I mean, of course, we've seen. Uh, from one settler colonial government to another, uh, the prime minister has refused to, you know, engage or recognize the the report. But also, Labor Senator uh, uh, Penny Wong has also uh, argued against the use of the term apartheid in that report. So important for those of us in so-called Australia to keep up the pressure on our governments to recognize this. And, you know, we all know that that recognition will then mean that there needs to be something done about colonization here too. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that they're reticent to acknowledge um, oppression and dispossession in other parts of the world when, um, yes, when we look at our own, own situation right here. Yeah, well, it is, uh, it's a mess, but we keep fighting, hey? Yeah, um, and really important to keep talking about it, platforming, and yeah, um, I've seen lots of tweets as well just from um, Palestinian um, activists and academics and artists here talking about the lack of media coverage. So it is important um, to to make sure that the media is covering this, even if it's community media, but also calling on mainstream media to, to cover these issues. 100%. Thanks, Rosie. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa 
an all-around and increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.16 in the morning. And now we're going to hear an interview that I did earlier this week with Gregor Husper, who's the principal lawyer at the Police Accountability Project, and we discussed the Department of Justice's current review into Victoria's police complaint system and the serious problem of police investigating police. So uh, the Department of Justice is currently undertaking a review into Victoria's police complaint system with their public survey having just closed on the 1st of February. So before we jump into the reasons for that review, I thought we might begin by just going through how Victoria's police oversight and complaint system currently operates with a bit of a focus on the primary concern of police investigating police. Yeah, thanks, Priya. Well, In Victoria, if you have a complaint about police conduct or police misconduct, you can complain to either the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, which is IBAC, or straight to Victoria Police. And in effect, as we'll explain, that's pretty much the same thing. So both those agencies combined get about 4,000 complaints a year, but that doesn't mask the total number of complaints because in fact, the public has no confidence in IDAC or PS or VicPol. And so, and for example, across the sector, we don't encourage our clients to make complaints. Um, but then those are the volumes that they do get. And if a complaint goes to IBAC, they only investigate less than 1% of all complaints that they get, and they refer the other 99% to VicPol, to Victoria Police for investigation. So then, so effectively all police complaints in Victoria are handled by Victoria Police. Now Victoria Police have a specialised department within them called Professional Standards Command, which um, handles police complaints. But they in fact in turn refer 90% of all complaints that they get down to the local police station where the, where the officer is stationed who's been complained against or to the local department or local region where the complaint originates. So 90% of complaints can handle there. Um, now, even in a best-case scenario, if the investigation was being done by Professional Standards Command, but even more so when it gets done at the local level, the, 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 the issues are obvious, which is the conflict, inherent conflict of interest that you have with police investigating police. And in practice, what, uh, what we have discovered at the um, Police Accountability Project, where we, for a couple of years, ran a high-volume police complaints practice, is that, that those complaints, um, the substantiation rate is less than 3%. So actually, that's not just our data, but that is the, the sort of known data, the, the substantiation rate, in other words, the rate at which a complaint is upheld is probably less than 3% of all complaints. And in our experience, that 3% didn't mean that the substantial complaint was upheld. In other words, I was assaulted, but that what was upheld was some minor element in that um, we, we didn't comply with some procedural element in, in issuing the warrant or something like that, but it's not the substantive complaint. So the substantiation rate is dismal, and that underscores why, in fact, the Victorian public have no confidence and should have no confidence in the police complaint system because your complaint, and, and overwhelmingly our experience is that people who lodge a complaint have got a valid concern 
and but that, that complaint won't be substantiated. And so the sort of outcomes that people want when they lodge a complaint, which is an apology, or that it should not happen to anybody else again, or that the police officers should be disciplined, none of those things are likely to happen. So that's our inherent problem with the system as we currently have it. Yeah, I mean, I think you've really clearly laid it out. And even in those cases where there is, I guess, some level of compliance with addressing that complaint, it, it appears to be pretty vexatious for them, people who have put in the complaint. That's right. It's really unsatisfying. And when we ran that clinic, um, at the end of it, after, you know, we ran a few hundred complaints, our clients in the whole came back to us and the feedback we got was that that was really unsatisfactory. Uh, they'd invested time and energy in truth-telling and in an expectation that they would be heard and there might be some vindication or an outcome. And it's quite crushing to have been the victim of police misconduct then to go to that effort to make the complaint and have it so easily dismissed and, and so uniformly dismissed. And it's also worth noting that in those few instances where a complaint might be substantiated, that doesn't mean that a police officer is being charged or, or, or sacked. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they've been disciplined. They might get counselling, um, but more likely something less than that even. So it's an entirely, it's a lost opportunity really for, uh, to, to address police misconduct, to improve systems and practices, to discover systemic issues, uh, uncover individual police officers who are performing badly, and to improve systems. So it's really a lost opportunity that you just couldn't imagine would exist in really any other public sector or private sector organisation. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, you know, this this review has emerged out of recommendations from both the 2018 uh, Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission or IBAC Parliamentary Committee's inquiry into the external oversight of police corruption and misconduct in Victoria, and also a Royal Commission into the Management of Police Informants. Now, you've raised some of the concerns that have been, you know, coming up around the issue of um, complaints, but what are some of the other things raised by the community legal sector um, in respect to this issue? And how do they compare to the priority areas that have been outlined in this review itself? Mm. Well, you know, it, it, we could depart a little bit from even what the community legal sector is saying and just look at what the IBAC review itself, the IBAC committee review itself found. So that was a joint parliamentary inquiry uh, conducted in 2007 and reported uh, 2017 and reported in 2018, and the IBAC committee inquiry scathing of really of the police complaints handling processes, and it finds that, um, for example, in respect of police investigations, that there's a lack of motivation to collect evidence from all witnesses, that there's bias, um, that the police that there's retaliation. Uh, that there are conflicts of interests. And so the IBAC committee report itself identifies all the problems with the police complaint system and, and does a really great job of doing that. So really it, it makes 69 recommendations and we in the sector wholeheartedly get behind and support really all of them except for four and one fundamental issue, which we'll come back to in a second. Um, but yes, it, just, it, it talks about the, the inherent problems with, um, with police investigations and the conflicts of interest that they experience and the bias. And, of course, those conflicts of interest aren't just what we would normally understand as a personal conflict of interest where someone is going to get a personal gain, but that in the police force, 
um, sorry, they're members of the police force and they're seeking to avoid any political fallout for the police force that they're members of. There's huge loyalty to other police officers. And of course, they don't want to be ostracized and sidelined um, themselves for doing a good job. And so the conflicts of interest are, are quite obvious. And the IBAC committee report found that the Royal Commission was a little bit more specialized in its investigation. And it looked at the Lawyer X scandal, which was incidents where the police used a lawyer as an informant. And the, the, the key element there was how could this have happened? Something so obviously dangerous. Why was there no oversight of this? Why were there no checks and balances? So it's not just the wrongdoing, but how could this have happened? Why were there no checks and, over, and oversights? And that leads, I guess, to the second element of the current systemic review into police oversight that we're having. Um, why are we having that? Well, the government was obliged to respond to the IBAC committee report, and they kicked that can down the road when the Lawyer X scandal erupted and said, look, we're going to do this work when we finish the Royal Commission because we're going to get some more recommendations out of that. So now that both of those inquiries are finished, it's, it's the time to address those both head on and the Department of Justice is leading that work. And it's important to note that they're looking at not just the police complaints system, but also the oversight or the lack of oversight. And oversight is something that happens more, for example, in the United Kingdom, but which is incredibly lacking here in Victoria and Australia. And what does oversight mean? Well, oversight means looking at systemic issues. So are we over, are we, do we have oversight about the use of weapons by police? Um, about the incidents in which people of colour are being pulled over and stopped and searched? Is there oversight about the introduction of new weapons, about the use of capsicum spray as a coercive tool, um, deaths in custody, you know, police contact deaths? And so really we have no monitoring and oversight of police at all in Victoria. And so this, this, in, this um, current review will hopefully lead to recommendations about more robust and comprehensive oversight processes and reporting back by Victoria Police in response to those oversight procedures, including at the parliamentary level. Yeah, and I think what you've covered really sort of speaks to a lot of concerns that we've seen over the past few years, whether it's people following the coronial inquest into the tragic death of Auntie Tanya Day and that you know, push to include systemic racism as a finding that all kind of links back into those two kinds of levels of concern that you were referring to about the oversight itself and then the procedures by which complaints are handled, um, you know, as they come in. And I was also wondering if there's anything you'd like to comment on with respect to the consultation process that has, um, that has been a part of this review and how it's been conducted thus far. Well, the department has reached out quite well to sector participants, so in the legal assistance sector, and although, because they've got a very optimistic timetable, they're talking about introducing new legislation in, in, in this term of government, so that means this year, it has been, there hasn't been a lot of time to respond to issues papers, but they've invited the sector, the legal assistance sector, and no doubt the police and other interested bodies, to respond um, to the to the review, and apart from timeliness, that's been a reasonably good consultation. The um, consulting with 
affected individuals. Look, I think that could have been done a little bit better. That's been done exclusively through a survey um, that they've offered. And initially that survey only invited participants to say, have you lodged a complaint? And if yes, it asked a lot of questions about your experience. And if no, that was it. <laughs> and so they gained no knowledge. Precisely, in fact, all the questions that they ask of people who did lodge a complaint, like what outcomes did you get and what would you have wanted and how do you think we could have done this better, none of those questions were then available to people who hadn't lodged a complaint. So then they changed that and allowed a, um, a blank field. If you didn't lodge a complaint, why not? But once again, um, actually, they didn't ask why not. They said, if you didn't, what would you have wanted? Um, once again, they didn't have all the prompts that people who had lodged a complaint would have gotten about what they would have sought what would they would have wanted. And I think that's, again, another missed opportunity because those are precisely the people I think you want to hear from, the people who are saying, we, we have no confidence in the system and this is why not. Um, I, I realised that I've sort of skipped over something and that, that I really need to come back to, which is that the systemic review and the IVAC committee review are kind of predicated by this idea that, well, we need to have a new model and we need to review the model and what does that look like? The direction in which it's going is that it'll be a hybrid model. In other words, Victoria Police will investigate some complaints up to a certain level, and after that, it'll be an independent investigatory body that it should investigate, for example, more serious misconduct. But this really, for the legal assistance sector, is the critical issue because, in our view, oh, and, and it's assumed that that independent body is going to be IBAC. So where we depart from the recommendations of the IBAC committee and really where the systemic review is coming from is in two key issues. In our view, it shouldn't be IBAC. We don't really have confidence that IBAC, which is an anti-corruption body and is subject to incredible privacy and secrecy laws, is the right body to be the independent police complaints agency. And in our view, they must introduce an entirely new, standalone, independent, properly resourced, client-centred, prompt, accountable police complaints body, similar to the one that they have in Northern Ireland, which is highly successful. And then, whether it isn't wholly independent police complaints body or um, hugely compromised, if it is IBAC, the next question is, which complaints does that body investigate and which are left with Victoria Police? And we say all complaints. All complaints should be with that independent body except for maybe customer service complaints. And currently, where they're pushing it is that only serious misconduct would be investigated by the independent body. And the definition of serious misconduct is, for example, that the police officer would be subject to a five-year term of imprisonment of law. Now, why is that bad? What does that leave out? That leaves out racialized, homophobic policing. That leaves out people experiencing a mental health episode who are capsicum spray, and really leaves out 90% of the sort of policing that we are concerned about. And what does it leave in? Well, really the most serious criminal offending by police officers. It's meaningless if that is the threshold at which the independent body gets involved. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, what you've outlined there really, you know, really shows that if there isn't this involvement of community legal organizations and advocates kind of pushing for the best possible standard of accountability, there is a risk that these recommendations will, will not be implemented in the spirit that they're intended. Um, now, 
where can listeners find a bit more about these issues that we discussed? And are there any upcoming developments in the space that we should be keeping an eye out for? Uh, yeah, so there is, um, the Department of Justice has a really great, actually, public-facing um, briefing paper on the systemic review, and it really canvasses issues very well. And it's, um, I think you get it by going to Systemic Review of Police Oversight Engage Victoria. So if you put that in, Systemic Review of Police Oversight um, Engage Victoria or Department of Justice, you'll see the public-facing consultation papers, which are really great. Um, in terms of a, a really great briefing paper about what the sector thinks, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, VALS, have brought up a, a fantastic briefing paper um, available to the public about, and they, they, they frame it so well. So I would, I would say go to VALS to have a look at that. And there's still opportunities to reach out to your community legal centre if you maybe want to have your voice platformed we will still be doing some of that, pulling out some of those individual clients that we've worked closely with and giving their voices and um, platforming their voices and, and uh, promoting them to the department. We're still completing our issues response to the department's issues papers, but that's sort of a confidential process. And we'll be engaging with our parliamentarians, which really everybody in the public can do as well, to tell them we want a new independent police complaints body that investigates all police complaints. Well, perfect. And I encourage people to go check out those papers and get involved in some of this advocacy as well. This is about, you know, making sure that we're protecting our communities, especially at a time where there have been expanded police powers over the past few years. So thank you, Gregor, for taking us through um, through this process of review and some of your concerns about police investigating police. And I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks, Kriya. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.33 in the morning, and you just heard a conversation I had earlier this week with Gregor Husper, who's the principal lawyer at the Police Accountability Project, and we were discussing the Department of Justice's review into Victoria's police complaint system and some of the serious issues around police investigating police, as well as hopes from the sector about you know, how this situation can change. Now, this review is responding to a range of concerns that were outlined in the 2018 Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, or IBAC's, inquiry into the external oversight of police corruption and misconduct in Victoria and the Royal Commission into the Management of Police Informants. And as Gregor said... Um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS, has developed a really good resource on this, so I encourage people to head to their website, which I believe is vals.org.au. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. I think we might head into a track now. So uh, this is a new release uh, from Nairi. This is 
Ladol Dijon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but you know what? Don't listen to me. Check this song out. That was Le Dol de Jeune by Nairi, and this was uh, part of the music event So Frenchy, So Chic. So from Yeye 2.0, which is a celebration of French Yeye music as interpreted by some of Australia's best female artists. So that's uh, there's going to be events around that uh, across 2022, and that was a really lovely cover. Um, very exciting. Now, Rosie, I might throw to you for our next interview. Yeah, so next up we're joined by Lloyd Williams, the National Secretary for the Health Services Union, and Lloyd is joining us this morning to discuss the really devastating numbers of deaths due to COVID-19 in aged care facilities, the government's recent announcement of a bonus for aged care workers, and the HSU's case, which is currently um, before the high... uh, before the Fair Work Commission arguing for higher wages for aged care workers. Good morning, Lloyd. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Rosie. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. So, um, really sadly, there have been 473 COVID-related deaths in aged care recorded in January alone. And we've also heard about the staffing shortages due to the Omicron Omicron wave, um, the lack of rats available for both uh, aged care residents and workers. And could you just paint a picture for us about what is happening in aged care facilities right now? Sure. 
Rosie, the escalating crisis in aged care due to the Omicron surge has left our aged care workers experiencing extraordinarily high levels of stress. They're doing their absolute best to meet residents' needs while being dangerously understaffed. They're working double shifts and enduring long hours of uh, in-personal protective equipment. Aged care staff are working extraordinarily hard They're exhausted, they're burnt out and they're traumatised by the experience of working day in, day out to provide care in these uh, very challenging circumstances and with limited resources. You know, poor staffing continues to devastate the sector and that's caused by either staff catching COVID themselves and being furloughed uh, or indeed they're leaving the system due to fatigue and feeling undervalued uh, by the government. Um, older people are at risk of missing out on essential care. Because of this crisis, there are lockdowns restricting many residents to their rooms as services try to keep them safe. So so what's happening to our mums and dads and grandparents in aged care is deplorable and and it's the Morrison government's fault. It's, it's primarily due to poor planning right from the get-go. Mm, yeah, it's really devastating. Um you know, not only are people dying, but they are dying in isolation and not having contact um, with their families in those final days, which, you know, as for anyone, you can imagine that's absolutely devastating. Um, thank you for outlining that for us. I was just also reading about, you know, speaking about these deaths in aged care. The minister, Greg Hunt, had said that approximately 60% of those who had passed in palliative uh, were in palliative care, and also Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been previously been quoted as describing residents as in pre-palliative care. Um, obviously, this framing, you know, it's a particular framing. I'm wondering if you could respond to that um, and the way these deaths are being framed as um, sort of inevitable. Yes, well, it's extremely insensitive, isn't it? So, so what are they trying to say? Uh, that they are going to die anyway, so their loss is of less concern. It's completely abhorrent and disrespectful to older Australians. These comments show the largest level of disrespect, in my view, that you could show uh, to any older Australian. In January alone, we had 473 people die. These people aren't just numbers. And they're, they're grieved by families right across this country. So when I heard those comments, I was um, uh, I, I was just gobsmacked. Yeah, it's quite shocking. And just as as I said before, that idea that um, you know, uh, when when someone passes away, the importance for that person and for their family of being together and being able to go through that devastating process um, in the most in the best way possible. It's absolutely not possible when you think about the kinds of lockdowns, restrictions and just how long people have been isolated from their families. It's not just this wave, but it's been the last few years. It's been really, really difficult. Um, So uh, The Guardian Australia has reported that almost half of Australia's aged care facilities are battling COVID outbreaks um, with unboosted residents dominating the nation's death toll. The fact that aged care residents remain unboosted um, in some cases and that the sector, like everywhere, basically is struggling to get enough rats seems like it was wholly preventable. Can you speak to the effects of the delayed booster rollout and the lack of preparation in this third wave of COVID for aged care? 
Yes, absolutely. As I said before, hundreds of Australian aged care residents died in January as a consequence of the Morrison government's failures. The Morrison government failed to plan before allowing Omnicron to rip through the community and residents in aged care who built this country are now paying the price. Tens of thousands of vulnerable aged care residents are now locked in their rooms. Uh, They're unable to receive visitors because of outbreaks in their facilities. Uh, And, you know, and because of the, the lack of planning, we... We have previously had different variants of, uh, of COVID. The government should have planned for new variants coming through, and we know that there will be future variants and they've failed to plan for them. And, and, and people in aged care and the workers are paying the price, you know. Workers are devastated by the impact of the deaths that we're seeing and the lack of preparation by the Morrison government. They, they just feel that they've been abandoned. A recent survey of about a 1,000 aged care workers conducted by our union in New South Wales and the ACT in Queensland showed that 82% of those surveys said that their aged care facility was not ready for this wave of infections. Nine in ten said they were under, there was understaffing in their workplace and 84% reported having excessive workloads. Um, so... You know, workers surveyed are saying that they're experiencing shortages in um, rapid antigen tests and uh, and PPE. So the story is a sad one, isn't it? The, the Commonwealth has bungled the aged care COVID response every step of the way. The same disastrous errors have been repeated, um, be it the original vaccine rollout, the booster rollout, rat supplies, PPE supplies, and the intervention of the Commonwealth Government regulator has been slow with non-existence. So every step of the way, we're seeing uh, failures by the Commonwealth in terms of uh, in managing this, uh, this important area. Yeah, it's really devastating. Um, and so earlier this week, I believe on Tuesday, the PM announced that aged care workers would be eligible for two bonus payments of up to $400 each for the next two months. And the HSU currently has a case before the Fair Work Commission arguing for wage increases for aged care workers. Could you just speak about the current wages and conditions of these workers and the union's response to this announcement? Yes, so the Health Services Union um, lodged our case before the Commission back in 2020, late 2020, uh, and that claim is to lift more than 200,000 aged care workers' pay by 25%. What that would mean to, uh, to aged care workers would be different things at different levels, but essentially aged care workers could see you know, their minimum wage rise by at least $5 an hour. So for a personal care worker who currently gets paid a staggeringly low $22 an hour at entry level, uh, we would want to bring that up to $29 an hour. I think that in any fair-minded person that would recognise that $22 an hour is an appallingly low wage for, uh, uh, for this type of work. Scott Morrison is insulting aged care workers with his measly election-motivated bonus uh, when he could be doing more 
and make a submission to the Fair Work Commission to give aged care workers a better wage increase all year round. He's effectively admitting that aged care workers aren't paid enough, but all he wants to do is give them a pre-election bribe, but he won't do anything to lift wages permanently. Rosie, we're hemorrhaging staff from the aged care sector, and and how can we blame them? You know, as I said before, why would you why would you come and work in the sector to earn as little as twenty two dollars an hour for this physically and emotionally demanding work? Uh, you can get more by working in uh, retail or uh, or hospitality. So Scott Morrison knows that there's a massive attraction and retention problem uh, in aged care. Uh, that problem goes to pay and job security and by supporting our work value case is the best way to start addressing that workforce crisis, but he simply refuses to do so. Yeah, it's really, um, it's just, I don't know, it's sort of unbelievable the fact that people are getting paid such low wages to do work that should be valued and respected hugely in our community, considering um, that these these workers are caring for our older people and our loved ones. Um, yeah. And $22 an hour is a ridiculous, ridiculous wage. And yeah, just the idea that, um, you know, a $400 bonus could possibly make up for kind of a stable um, living wage year round. I was wondering as well about, I know there's been a lot of problems with workers having insecure work and working across multiple aged care facilities in order to kind of make up enough hours. Is that still a concern and and, um, what's happening on that front? Uh, Yes, it's absolutely a concern. Um, Well, and it's for a number of reasons. Uh, 70%, there is very little full-time work in, in aged care. Uh, it's highly casualised and, uh, and, and primarily part-time work. Whilst at the moment there's plenty of work, but people have to work multiple shifts. They have to work across multiple employers. The way the shifts and the staffing arrangements are, um, are organised, it's, it's based in just-in-time. So, you know, people work short shifts, long shifts, depending on the demand. Uh, in the services. So, uh, so, so there, there's a range of things that need to happen and, uh, and this crisis that we're seeing at the moment has been going on for years and, but the demands really haven't changed. They've just been exacerbated by, uh, they've been exacerbated by COVID and, uh, and shown to be, uh, what they are. So, you know, going forward, we need to do a range of things. We need to fix staffing. Uh, in aged care services. We need the right number of staff with the right skills mix uh, to be able to deliver, you know, holistic care for older Australians. We absolutely need to lift wages. You know, you would not come and work in this sector uh, if you weren't absolutely committed to uh, uh, to it. Um, but these workers make a difference to people's lives. Um so lifting wages not only benefits workers, uh, residents and their families are then can be confident that we can attract and retain quality staff uh, by having decent wages. And I think that, you know, most Australians would, uh, would look at this and say that this is an appalling situation that needs to be fixed. We need to provide secure employment. We, we shouldn't have aged care workers having to work, you know, across multiple facilities and across 
you know, multiple employers to uh, to eke out a living. Um, you know, uh, aged care needs to become an appealing long-term career for aged care workers. And we need safe workplaces as well. You know, what we've seen through COVID over the last uh, two years with, you know, poor supply of PPE and rats and, you know, frontline staff, you know, uh, trying to secure a safe work environment themselves is absolutely unacceptable. And the government needs to make sure that there's transparent funding for these services going forward. This profit-driven idea that our... Um, you know that our loved ones in aged care is, uh, is is profit before care is just unacceptable. Uh, we don't know where the money ends up, um, and we need to know that every dollar of taxpayers' money is being directly spent on care outcomes for older Australians. Yeah, thank you. Um, and as you say, your your case before the Fair Work Commission was um, launched in 2020. So, and we know we have known since the Royal Commission. I mean, we've known for a long time that this system is really, um, really, really struggling. And that this isn't just because of COVID. Um, that this has been a system in crisis for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and, and Rosie, could I say that anybody who wishes to support our fight to change aged care can visit changeagecare.org. Um, uh, our view is if we if we want to change aged care, we need to change the government. Thank you very much. And just finally, um, you've kind of outlined it there, but what what are aged care workers and residents and families calling for in response, um, not only to the COVID nineteen crisis, but the crisis in aged care? Well, they're calling for those things that I mentioned earlier. They want to see better staffing. They want us to fix staffing. They want us to lift wages so that so people choose aged care as a career. They want to see transparent funding. They want to see better food. They want to see better staffing to provide better care. And they want to see more secure employment. So, you know... Families are wanting to see the same as what workers are. They want to see the, the system fixed, uh, but um, and they want to see a government that's uh, that's prepared to to get out there and uh, and fix the um, the debacle that we have. And and as I said before, I think that you know if we want to see real change, we need to uh, we need to change the government. All right, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. It's my absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. Just then you heard from Lloyd Williams, National Secretary of the Health Services Union, joining us to discuss the devastating numbers of deaths due to COVID-19 in aged care facilities, the government's recent announcement of bonuses for aged care workers and the Health Services Union's case for higher wages that is currently before the Fair Work Commission. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. 
Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go to Malika to announce our next interview. Malika, are you there? Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, thank you for that handover. Um, yes. So this morning we're joined by Sven from Red Pocket Press to talk a bit about Lunar New Year and um, their upcoming zine, the Year of the Water Tiger zine. Good morning, Sven. How are you? Hey, good morning. Good to hear from you. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, firstly, happy Lunar New Year. Um, could you tell listeners a bit more about what Lunar New Year means to you and how you celebrate this time of year? Yeah. Um, so I just want to say, yeah, happy Lunar New Year to all those who are celebrating at the moment, um, especially a shout-out to, um, yeah, queer Asians who are celebrating at the moment who might be finding it a bit hard at this time to celebrate with family. Um, yeah, so I just want to do a big shout-out um, to them who are celebrating. Um, so, uh, sorry, so the question was, yeah, what? how do I celebrate Lunar New Year? Is yeah. That yeah. <laughs> um <clears throat> So uh, I guess for me, I've kind of, uh, I've grown up with my mom who is, I'm Vietnamese, and my mom has always, like, usually, like, before COVID, she would take us to the temple and we would, um, the word is gum, and I, I guess it kind of translates to, like, we would offer food and prayers um, for uh, different ancestors. And, um, yeah, and so this year, it was, like, more of a quiet year um, just because of COVID, which was totally fine with me. And um, we just moved into a new house. So, yeah, usually we would prepare um, days before, and um, it would involve a lot of fruits and special cakes made during and special foods made during the year. Um, 
And the reason we do this is because we want to, um, yeah, bless us for the coming year that's going ahead. And also, um, yeah, I think having these kind of um, ceremonies that exist around this time of the year has always been quite special for me. And to bring it to Red Pocket Press and share it and build upon it with, like, the queer Asian community here, um, it has allowed me to kind of, like, bridge these kind of two worlds that, Historically, I felt like um, we're quite separate until doing my own research of like how how like queer histories are also so deeply entwined in Lunar New Year ceremonies and histories as well. Well, that's incredible, and I, I would love to hear a bit more about that in a second. But um, tell us a bit more about um, the process of creating the Year of the Water Tigerzine and even past editions. What's that been like for you? Yeah, um, so I started off, um, one of the first, I was first introduced to beans when I was at uni, and I really loved that DIY um, aspect of it and how it could bring people together, and it was, um, for me, it was accessible in terms of distribution and, and cost as well to make. Um, yeah. So that's what I really liked about it, that it could be passed on quite easily, and, um, you know, like zines don't necessarily weigh too much, so if you're carrying it around, you could carry it in your pocket, in your bag, and hand it out to people. And I loved that about zines. So, um, and, yeah, when I think of Lunar New Year, I think a lot about, like, uh, different coloured papers and textures um, and obviously, uh, like, very sonic as well. But I was really interested in the idea of um, collaging and zines. And so... um, I remember for Year of the Pig Zine, which was launched in 2019, I had this day of, like, I had collected all these papers throughout the years of, like, from, like, Asian grocery stores and, like, yeah, different places I'd been, and um, I started collaging these backgrounds. And um, I ended up using them for the first scene as backgrounds for people's artwork. And... um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just felt really right to do that, and that kind of continued as a as its own kind of tradition. Um, yeah, so the zine features uh, queer Asians who celebrate Lunar New Year, and um, so it's not just um, some people call it Chinese New Year, but mm-hmm. um, for me, I feel like it's better to call it Lunar New Year because it kind of uh, encapsulates a lot of uh, different Asian communities who celebrate this time of the year. Uh, so that might be Vietnamese, Burmese, um, and also uh, Malaysians. Um, uh, historically, Japanese people did celebrate this time of the year, but because of colonization, um, yeah, the years kind of got mucked up and, um, like, Western Western timelines were more adopted into it. So, But, yeah, I also recognize, like, um, yeah, Japanese folks who also celebrate might celebrate this time of the year, but in a different way. Um, Yes, it's been really, and Koreans as well. So there's a lot of Asian communities who celebrate this specific New Year. Um, And it's always really fascinating to learn more about, like, the different histories of that as well. Um, So the theme that we have for this year, we just finished the call-out, and um, we've had about 28 submissions already, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. So now the the committee and I, so the committee includes um, Rose, Sana, and Hugh, who were all previous zine contributors. 
And yeah, and so they're working with me to help select um, the the final contributors for this year's thing. Yeah, I'll wait to see what it turns out like. And um, in one of your Instagram posts on West Public Press, you talk about this period of transition into the year of the water tiger and how it will ask us to step into our authority. And I really like this line in particular where you say, power isn't replicating the structures that fail us. It's about taking the courage to step into our own light stripes, scars, wings and all. Can you share a bit more about what this means and the significance of this year in particular? Yeah, so um, I really love, like, every year, like, researching into, um, like, yeah, just, like, I think it's my Aquarius. I love, like, just researching (laughs) into these things. (laughs) Um, So uh, I want to start with the year of the rat because that was, like, obviously, which was 2020, and that was a huge change for all of us. It was when the pandemic started. Um, So... The, the zodiac cycle, uh, which consists of 12, um, 12 animals, and I believe it's like four, four or five elements. And um, so every year there's a different animal and a different element associated with the year. Um, and the idea was that, uh, so the story behind how the zodiac cycle was created was that um, the emperor of China had set upon... Um, a race to decide um, the order of the animals. So whoever would cross the, the finish line first would be the first one and then second one and so on, and then it would just repeat. So the first animal in the zodiac cycle is the rat. Um, and in 2020 was when we, when we moved into the element of metal. And each element um, changes every two years. So metal was present in the year of the ox, which is 2021, and in the year of the rat. The rat was about, um, the rat and the ox are considered as retrospective years. So it's really about like assessing where we've been in the, in the previous cycle and starting to build the foundations for the next new cycle that we're in at the moment. Um, and when you look at the rat, the rat is, the rat. The reason why the rat crossed the race first was it had to cross a river to get to the finish line. But a rat can't swim, so it actually jumped on the back of an ox um, to get to the finish line, which is obviously very smart. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so that's the reason why it was it came first in the race. Um, and as you, yeah, as we remember, like 2020 was a lot of upheaval, a lot of like. Um, uprising and protest and a lot of like uh, like cracks being revealed in like our capitalist um, system. So the rat was about those upheavals and then the ox was about um, the hard work to build a foundation for something new to come and yeah so for me personally it was definitely uh a year of like slow work and sometimes the work felt really heavy. Um, so, and we could see that with a lot of like um, what we might have, what society would say is like setbacks, but actually they're um, kind of like with all the lockdowns that happened last year in Nam, it was, for me, I felt like it was more like for us to kind of reassess, okay, what are our foundations? Um, how are we building and um, 
that's why like I noticed that there were a lot of land back initiatives being really taken to the forefront last year as well. So it was really about like our connection with land and um and yeah and yet yeah, what we're building. So now we're up to a year of the water tiger and the water element will will characterize the next two years. So the water, the tiger is a very different animal to an ox. Um, it's a lot more direct. It's very forceful. It doesn't move slow like an ox. <laughs> um, it's very instinctive and very powerful. Um, and it's one that's completely fearless. So that line that you just read out about, like stepping into our power and authority, is very much that. It's about taking charge and but not in the way of like it could either be interpreted as continuing on the um like cycles of violence and harm that have been that exist in our society or really what I'm I'm hoping people will think about is like how we can break out of those cycles and what forms of power we can step into personally and collectively to build a society that is more um, justice-orientated and more, um, yeah, orientated towards, like, caring for um, caring for others, like our elderly, um, people who are disabled, um, like, caring more about, like, First Nations issues. And, yeah, so I think that there's, there's a lot of that energy that can be pulled towards. Yeah. No, that, that was absolutely beautiful hearing the journey and, like, kind of, connecting it to all events and experiences we shared together over the last few years. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess just briefly, as we start wrapping up our interview today, could you just briefly share what it's been like um, to create this creative space that honours and celebrates queer Asian identity and culture over the last few years? Um, it's been really um, beautiful and and also challenging at times. Like, I think that's the nature of doing... Um, when you're doing work that's um, so closely, well, it's yeah, it's so grassroots. Like I've like done it out of my own, um, yeah, finances. Like I um, maybe there's only a handful of times I've received like a small grant or like donations, and um, yeah, I think it's just like it can be a lot of work because um, I'm the person who like keeps it going. Um, but for every year in the past, we've had. Um, a team of people help out with like Lunar New Year events, um, and it couldn't have happened um, without this team of people and and of course contributors and um, people here and also um, overseas who are supporting the work as well. So I think that that's been really beautiful. I've heard of lots of stories of people making friends through the zine and through the Lunar New Year parties that we've had in the past, and I think that just makes yeah that makes me really happy and. Um, gives me a lot of hope and a lot of joy. So, yeah. That sounds absolutely beautiful just to hear those stories of connection. And lastly, yeah. for people that are interested, where can they kind of follow the work you're doing and support this as well? Um, so, yeah, at the moment I keep it pretty low-key in terms of, like, <laughs> how many channels, communication channels, because... Yeah, I'm mostly the one doing it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, at the moment it's just Instagram, but I'm hoping mm-hmm. to, um, yeah, to build like a newsletter people can subscribe to 
um, this year so that it can reach those beyond Instagram. But yeah, at the moment it's Instagram, so it'll be um, at Red Pocket Press, and that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ben, and sharing a bit more about your story and and Red Pocket Press and the zines you've been creating over the last couple of years. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Sia, for inviting me on, Malika. And yeah, and I love three Sia um, Thursday breakfast. So yeah, I'm, I'm all I'm all here for it. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Um, you're listening to three Sia Thursday morning breakfast, and we just. Um, heard from Sen from Red Pocket Press who joined us to talk a bit more about Lunar New Year and the upcoming being um, the Year of the Water Tiger. Thanks again, Rosie and Priya. Housing Justice After Lockdown examines renters' rights in Australia throughout the post-COVID and provides a critical discussion on the roadmap to a more secure and fairer housing reality for everyone. The forum will offer an open discussion on organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice. It's a free online event on Wednesday, February 9th from 5.30pm to 7.30pm brought to us by the Renters and Housing Union, the Support Network for International Students and Homes Not Prisons and also 3CR. To register, check the website for details, 3cr.org.au. Housing Justice, a free online event, Wednesday, February 9th, 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. See you there. A proud black man, proud black man, should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1 p.m. on 3CR. Proud black man. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.13 in the morning, and we are about to be joined by Aboriginal activist and veteran 3CR broadcaster Uncle Robbie Thorpe, along with collaborator Mindy McHale, who's a sovereign Remankermi woman whose ancestral lands are in the south of what is now called Egypt, to discuss working in solidarity, Indigenous sovereignty, and the Black GST movement. So good morning, both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so just, bef- uh, just to kick it off, um, would you like to introduce yourselves? Um, Uncle Robbie, I'll go with you first. Yeah, well, I'm, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm, um, I'm from I'm Gunai Kurnai and also uh, Gatwarong. Um, it's uh, Western Districts of Victoria and um, Eastern, Eastern Victoria. And Mindy? Um, my name, my nickname's Mindy. Uh, my Egyptian name is Nefertari. Um, my English name is Melinda. So you can choose one of them. <laughs> and my people are from the black soil around the Nile River. Uh, my people originate in the area of Luxor and Asut in the south of what is called Egypt, but we call it in our language Kimi. So I'm a Remen Kimi woman. Fantastic. And thank you both so much for making the time to, to talk about the organizing that you do together. So um, maybe just to just to jump into it, um, can we start by talking a bit about what the Black GST movement is? Yeah, sure. I'll let Uncle Robbie go, hey? Okay, I'll, I'll do that. Um, the Black GST was a uh, campaign organized by... Um, 
small group of people in the lead-up to the Commonwealth Games, or what we call the Stolenwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006. Uh, the G means uh, the genocide, the issues surrounding genocide. S is uh, the issues surrounding slavery, and T is is treaty. Uh, they're, they're the fundamental legal issues that are unresolved in this country today and basically the cause of all of our problems. So they're the issues that we're trying to address. So, and it's been around for probably uh, since... 90, uh, 2006, in the lead up to 2006. So, it's been around for a small time. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's the issues that we decided were the, were the, were the issues, and we packaged it up for the Black Fairs campaign. Mm, yeah. That came out of Melbourne in 2006. Uh, Uncle Robbie actually came up with that term, Black GST, um, and it's kind of reinvented itself a little bit in the last uh, probably 18 months. And Uncle Robbie and Uncle Jeff Ma have uh, decided they wanted to put together legal writs to be delivered to the International Criminal Court uh, to hold the Australian government to account for crimes of genocide and ongoing genocide. Um, and particularly around the area of no jurisdiction, mm. uh, that this, these lands were never, the sovereignty was never ceded. These lands were never, the permission was never granted. Um, there is no jurisdiction, no legal jurisdiction. Uh, so that is what we've been working on at the moment, the project's been focused on. We actually read out the writ on 3CR on Invasion Day this year. We launched the writ. Um, so I was at the tent embassy mm-hmm. on Ngunnawal land and had the opportunity to read it out live on that day. Yeah, fantastic. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what was in that writ? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Uncle Robbie could go into more detail probably, but it's really to hold uh, the Australian government to account because we've recognised that the Australian domestic um, legal system is never going to be able to deal with what's happened in this country. It's, it's deliberately set up with the intention to avoid this issue uh, and to allow the genocide to continue. So really we're looking for international intervention. So we're going to be sp- uh, delivering the writ to the United Nations, the International Criminal Court, Queen Elizabeth II, the Governor General of so-called Australia, the Prime Minister of Australia and all Australian police. Uh, and it's, it's around the fact that there is no jurisdiction and that there is a, a huge loss of lives and freedom and land and money uh, for Indigenous peoples on this land. Mm-hmm. Have I summed it up, Uncle Robbie? Yes, you have very well. Thanks, Mindy. You're welcome. Yeah, and I think um, this really does come back to a lot of the sort of fundamental issues that, you know, um, Uncle Robbie covers in his programs on 3CR about the lack of consent, about, you know, this lack of lack of attention to Indigenous sovereignty over these lands. And I was um, wondering if maybe you could both speak to what it has meant to work in solidarity across, uh, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and the different roles and um, positions that you kind of occupy in doing that kind of organising. Uh, I was in, I'm involved with um, this, uh, non-Aboriginal 
solidarity. It, basically, most of my life's been about that. Um, I've worked with a, Dr Claire Land, who's also a broadcaster from 3CA, who wrote a book called um, Decolonising Solidarity mm. and how, how people can get involved in a real way. And it's... Um, so um, our experiences, myself, Gary Foley, and and others, Claire's put a book together called Decolonising Solidarity uh, because uh, the effort and the time that that took to, teach, to talk about people getting involved in the right way. So there's a book around called uh, Decolonising Solidarity for that exact purpose. We have had a... Um, be useful and purposeful when you're getting involved with others in a struggle. Yeah, and I think that that book definitely speaks to the idea of, you know, making sure that at, you know, people that are not indigenous to these lands are getting involved in a in a useful way and in a way that is directed by First Nations. Mindy, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think it's a, a big challenge, uh, particularly at the moment. And I think anybody, as you said uh, correctly, who's non not Indigenous to these lands, um, it's on us. You know, we need to address the fact that we're living on stolen land and we need to, instead of the attitude of, you know, it's not us who did the stealing, the bottom line is we're benefiting from that theft. So we need to own that and we need to make amends. We need to actively be engaging with financial and land reparations. Uh, and I guess for me, as the daughter of a migrant to these lands, the challenge is also heavily upon the migrant community. Uh, it's not just on the white community. I think I've heard a lot of migrants, fellow migrants, say, oh, but it wasn't us. This isn't our ancestors. We didn't do that damage. But the reality is, it doesn't take away the reality, the, the fact that these are stolen lands we're benefiting from, all of us. And so I, I'm particularly interested in challenging the non-Indigenous community to pay active financial reparations and to return land. Uh, so I take that very seriously and I practice that with my own finances and my children. I'm training them to do that. And my challenge at the moment is to... Uh, speak to allies, um, to shift from just being allies who get involved here and there to actually become accomplices mm -hmm. so that if if somebody like Uncle Robbie is going to be targeted, they also are going to be targeted because they're so far in in terms of their solidarity stance. Mm. If you're not being targeted, you, my challenge to the non-Indigenous community would be, well, then you're not far in enough. Uh, it needs to cost. You know, we need to make up for what's been done and the benefit that we're reaping from the wrong. And so my challenge at the moment to the non-Indigenous community is if you own a house, to actually, you know, sign it in your will that 100% of the sale of that house when you die or whatever goes back to Indigenous peoples whose land it is. So that's the stance I take in that area. Yeah, and I mean, I think what you said about, uh, you know, non uh, non-white migrants to these lands uh, being complicit and being beneficiaries of genocide and stolen land is so important. And I also take that very seriously as um, as, as a South Asian person um, who 
had grew up on on stolen indigenous lands here because I think a lot of the time the the black white conversation also leaves out those complicities um, in our communities and I think so calling it out in in those explicit terms is really important um, yeah. so uh, turning back to you uncle Robbie I, I wanted to also hear your reflections on sort of how how the struggle has advanced you know over the years and especially in the wake of the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal tent embassy Wow. Whether that's a good question. Whether um, our uh, 50-year campaign recognition and struggle against the issues we're talking about is any better than it was 50 years ago? Have we improved anywhere along that track? That's my, you know, I'd, I'd be asking that question. Um, it's been um, one hell of a journey for our people, and uh, I was talking to one of the, the veteran Aboriginal activist yesterday, Gary Foley, he said he didn't think we didn't prove that all. In fact, we've gone backwards in terms of um, our struggle. So it hasn't ended. Now, the, the, the fact is, that there was a war here. It was a, a secret undeclared war here. It never ended. Australia never adopted the Genocide Convention, pretty fundamental war. And that's a prevents genocide, protects, gives people um, protection from these types of crimes. Australia never had that. The Black GST is basically a tax on non-Aboriginal people that are legally occupying our land in a way they can contribute uh, in a way where Aboriginal people don't have to um, go cap and hand to the people who are oppressing us for our basic health and welfare needs. So it's, it's people stepping up and getting out of the denial that they live in here. Everyone knows this is a racist, illegal occupation, all living on the proceeds of premeditated criminal genocide. What are you going to do about it? You know, what are you going to do about it? Because it's only going to get worse. And something bad's going to happen at the end of the day. Because... So you need to deal with it. You haven't got a treaty, you haven't got consent, and you haven't got jurisdiction. God damn it. Jesus Christ. And once, you, once this um, issue gets to the international... Uh, jurisdictions, because the courts in this country are the criminals. It's pretty clear to see. You know, why do people wonder why we're the most jailed people on earth in our own country? How does that work out? Anyway, you need, people need to deal with reality. The black GSP is a, GSP is a tax on you. And you can pay it if you want. We don't want blood money. We want what we're entitled to. We want people saying they're giving us stuff. This is our land. Every Every red thing that you've got, you've got from our country, right? Everybody. And look who's the most impoverished people of all. You know, the most incarcerated people. Look at our children stolen and abused by your pillars of society here. Now, you're a disgrace to humanity, Australia. You should do something better, mm. right? We've survived. We're still here. We want our right, human rights, our basic and fundamental human rights recognised today. Not when you're ready on. When today, now, this is the urgency of it. Now, we're hemorrhaging in terms of our lives, our culture, everything. It's been going for 20 years. Like, don't you see, I'm. Mm. Anyway, we've still got a box of messages and a, and a lighter in our hand. It's not over yet. Yeah. I mean, that really just sums it up perfectly. The time for speaking is over. This is, you know time for action and time for people 
non-Indigenous people to these lands to step up and actually enact that allyship and, sorry, accomplice accomplicehood. Um, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but that Mindy referred to. Now, we're going to have to wrap up um, because we're coming up to time, but I just wanted to thank you both so much for taking a moment to to talk us through some of the work of Black GST, and um, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Just have a look at that, Rick, and give us some consideration, give us some thought, and uh, get involved with the the Black GST. Perfect, and we'll link to that. Yeah. I'm happy to forward you the writ, Priya, if mm-hmm. you want to put it up on the 3CR Facebook page for people to look at. We'll put it up on we'll put it up on the show notes for this, and um, oh, so people great, can, can refer back to it. So thank you both awesome. so much. Oh, thank you, Bishop Ahmad Tosoni. Thank you, Uncle Robbie. No worries. Thank All right. And that was Aboriginal activist and veteran 3CR broadcaster Uncle Robbie Thorpe joining us along with collaborator Mindy McHale, who's a sovereign Remenkimi woman whose ancestral lands are in the south of what is now called Egypt to discuss working in solidarity, Indigenous sovereignty and the black GST movement. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And Rosie, are you there? We're going to wrap up the show. Yeah, I'm here. Let's go for it. All right. We'll do a very, very quick rundown. So first up, I caught up with Gregor Husper, Principal Lawyer at Police Accountability Project, to speak about the review into Victoria Police's complaint system. And then we spoke with Lloyd Williams, National Secretary for the Health Services Union, about the crisis in aged care. After that, Malika was joined by Zen from Red Pocket Press to discuss Lunar New Year and the Red Pocket Press scene. And finally, you heard from Aboriginal activist and veteran 3CR supporter Uncle Robbie Thorpe and Mindy Mikkel, sovereign Remen Kermi woman, um, and they were talking about Indigenous sovereignty and the Black GST. Yep, so important, and there will be links to all of this in our show notes. But until next week, take care, and we'll talk to you then. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.